right, I want us, if we can, to look at Acts 21. And again, I want to talk about Paul and talk about how he went from being, you know, the most uh, kind of famous persecutor of the church to his most famous proclaimer and advocate, the advocate of Jesus. And, you know, uh, we're going to do this a little bit differently than just starting off with, you know, Paul and uh, as a young boy and then making our way in, through his life. We're going to touch on that. But what I'd like to actually do is use a different technique. I'd like us to really advance forward into his life after he's already been uh, working to, you know, share Jesus. He's already been changed dramatically. And then I want to watch, walk with Paul through an incident in which he looks back at the beginning of his life with, with Christ and draw from that. So if we can, let's turn, and this is in your handout as well, to Acts 21, verse 30. And what we're doing here is we're watching what happens when Paul returns to Jerusalem. Jerusalem was a place that he was very familiar with because he was trained there. He had been, a, as we will see, uh, someone who had been trained to be a Pharisee. He came from a family which had a history of being, they had been Pharisees. They had been very committed to the laws of the scriptures and the details and the customs of the Jewish faith. And um, we'll talk about that in a bit. Paul, though, is coming back to Jerusalem now a place where he had his early career. And he is returning as a much different man. He also is being followed by a group of people who have fierce dislike for him. And actually, he, he calls them his enemies. He's, certainly, they were his opponents. They were, were very upset with Paul's ability to persuade people to consider Jesus. And so they followed him to Jerusalem and we're told that when they went, when he gets to Jerusalem, and this is in chapter 21, verse 30, it says the whole city was rocked by these accusations and there was a great riot that followed. The accusations that are being referred to in that 30th verse are the accusations that were made by Paul's, by Paul's enemies or his detractors who had followed him and had suggested a couple of different things. They were one, they were suggesting that Paul was, and you can read about it earlier in the chapter, they, they're saying he's trying to undermine the temple uh, he's not taking it seriously. He's trying to invite Gentiles into places in the temple that they should not go. They, they named a specific person. They made these false allegations, but the, they knew that it was like a spark because it got everybody so upset with him when they thought that he was, he was trampling over sacred truths and a sacred space. They became angered and violent and basically, people just began, we're told, look at it, it says here, it says that the whole city was rocked by these accusations, and a, and a great riot followed. Look at this. It says Paul was grabbed in the temple. He was grabbed and dragged out of the temple. So th physically, he's being dragged by a, a mob of people, and immediately, the gates were closed behind him. And it says, in, in the implication is they, they, were, they were beating him, and as they were trying to kill him, so he was being beaten. So they were trying to kill him. It says, the word reached the commander of the Roman regiment that all Jerusalem was in an uproar. And there was a, there was a Roman fortress, uh, like a little military station that was there, very close to the temple, um, designed to keep the peace. Remember, Rome was ruling over Jerusalem at the time. And they hear this commotion going on. There's this breaking out of a riot, or at least that's what it seems. They were quick to respond. We're told here that the, the word reached the commander of the Roman regiment, that all Jerusalem was in an uproar. Look at this. It says he immediately called out his soldiers and his officers, and he ran down among the crowd. And when the mob saw the commander and the troops coming, they, they stopped beating Paul, right? 
wow, right? It was just an amazing moment. They stopped beating him, and all of a sudden, all of a sudden, it's like, you know, the, there's this commotion, and then Paul, Paul is just there before them. They, the Romans are going, what's going on? You know, why is everybody so upset with this man? What's happening here? And it says the people started to yell out. It says, they, they, after he binds him in, in two chains, it says they orders him, first off, Paul, they throw some chains on him, all right? And then he says, what's going on? What's he done? What's this man... What's this man done to get you guys so upset? Now, in my mind, all I want us to think about is to think about the, maybe some of the things we see in the news when we think about the Middle East and some of, some of the displays that go on when people are just really angry. And a lot of times it's connected to sort of like a religious expression. This is happening in Jerusalem. And you're seeing all this ferocity, vehement anger, violence directed at, at Paul. And we're told that the, the, Romans, the Roman commander doesn't understand how, what has he done? Why are, you, why are you guys trying to kill this man? What's going on here? And it says, some shouted one thing. Look at that verse. verse it says, some shouted one thing, some another. Since he couldn't find out the truth and all the uproar and confusion, he ordered, well, we're going to be taking him, take him to the fortress. Let's get him out of here. Let's take him to the fortress. And it says that all, as Paul reached the stairs, the mob, look at this. Look at the picture here. The mob grew so violent that even the Roman soldiers, it says that the soldiers, they... They had to lift Paul up onto their shoulders just to get him out. They, had to, they were like, the picture is them trying to carry Paul out on their shoulders. And Paul's got chains on him. He's beat up. He's being carried by the Romans. They're trying to get him right out of the crowd. And then we're told that the crowd has lost, at this point, it's lost all its fear. It's just angry. It's just creating its own kind of mob-like feel. They're, they're trying to reach out, and they're saying, they're, they're just trying to grab him. Look what it says here. It says that if Paul reached the stairs, the, the, the mob grew so violent, they had to lift him on their shoulders to protect him. And the crowd's just following behind him. Kill him! Kill him! Right? This is what's going on. It's an amazing picture. We're told that what, ha- what happens next is that Paul... And in, in, it's interesting because after the soldiers kind of restored order, we're told that he, he asked for permission to speak. So after they calm everybody down a little bit, they're still there. They're angry. He, the, things are calming a little bit. Paul waves his hands and says, can I speak to you? Can I at least give some type of an explanation? And so they calm down. And Paul, what he does is he starts to speak, we're told, not in the language of the day, which would have been Greek, which is kind of like the English of the day. Everybody spoke as a business language, kind of an international language. Everybody was the language that people sort of really were accustomed to speaking um, when they wanted to cross ethnic lines and cultural lines, national lines. But Paul speaks to them on purpose and intentionally in their known tongue. He speaks to them in Hebrew. Others have said Aramaic. The bottom line is that gets their attention because he starts speaking to them in a language of their father's and other people. And then he says what follows, and this is in your handout as well, in Acts 22 there. He says, brothers and esteemed fathers, he says, listen, listen to me. As I, as I, I, wanna, I wanna offer my defense. I, I would like to, ex- let me explain myself. Let me tell you what, let me give you an explanation for who I am. Everybody's upset with me. And they've been saying these things about me. Let me tell you who I am. And he says, when they heard him speaking with their own language, the silence was even greater. That's the second verse there, 22. And then Paul said, listen, I am a Jew. I am a Jew. I was born in Tarsus of Cilicia, and, and I was educated here in Jerusalem. Now, I would like to put up a map that sort of gives us a geographical sense of what Paul's talking Where is Tarsus of Cilicia? What are we talking about regionally? All right, this is helpful for us to see. It's always good to connect the Bible to 
to what actually is going on sort of geographically and historically because it really helps us understand these things are very relevant for today. Check out where, where that is today. That's Cilicia, you can see where it is in, in, in the Roman era where Tarsus was located. It's in what we call today modern Turkey. You can see where Greece is to the west. See that, that there is to the south, you see where Jerusalem is located. So you've got Israel there today. If you go up, you've got Lebanon a little bit to the, to the right, to the east, Syria, which is where Damascus is located, which is in the news all the time. There's a civil war going on there right now. In Damas on the way, Damascus, by the way, was a city was, that Paul was heading towards to apprehend Christians when he met, when he, when he was confronted, as he says, by Jesus. And his life was turned upside down. It was on the road to Damascus. That's where he was heading to apprehend people who were followers of Jesus. And so, but you also can see where the other places are. You see where Egypt is. You see where Greece is. This whole world, Mediterranean world, which is so much, again, part of our world and in the news. Paul's educated up north there. Again, what we call today modern-day Turkey. He's, he's, he's educated in a, in a very significant city called Tarsus. Uh, Tarsus was a, a kind of a, a built a, along a river, the River Sindus. It was, it was what we would call a kind of a, a small cosmopolitan city. It was a city where you had the, the confluence of many different types of people and cultures. Uh, one of the things we know is that uh, there were a lot of uh, people coming from both directions. So we, we would say, in our, both from the Greco-Roman world and the, in the Eastern world, but we would say coming from the East and the West. My point is this. Paul grows up very familiar with the Greek culture, which is the dominant culture of the day. He's very adept at it. He understands it. He's seen people, all kinds of different people, traders from the East, you know, philosophers from the West. He's very familiar with Greek culture, Greek philosophies. This is just part of the way he's grown up. He, as in, as in his childhood, he would have come into contact with all those things. But he was raised primarily, and he declared himself fiercely Jewish in the sense that he was trained in Hebrew. He was trained in the scriptures. He was trained in the customs. Later on in Acts 23, he will say, I, I am a son, I'm a, I'm a Pharisee, a son of a Pharisee. And the implication is, and my, and my ancestors were Pharisees. And what he's saying is, I belong to a very strict sect that takes the Bible very seriously. That was my past, it's who I am, it's my pedigree. And, 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 and we know that one thing that happens is that he was also trained there, uh, as most Jewish young men would have been at the time. They were always told that they had to have a trade it was sort of part of their upbringing. Um, one of the great rabbis would actually say later on, he would say that if a person didn't have a trade, he said, he, he, he that, well, actually he said this, he that hath a trade in his hand, to what is he like? He is like a vineyard that is fenced. In other words, there's security and a, a, a protection from vulnerability. To have a, some type of, we would, in our day, a lot of times we'll say, well, you have to know, you have a degree or some skill set. In their day, it was very important that the young boys were, were trained to have a trade, and, and, and men and women had some type of training also in the scriptures and things like that. They were very, very, it was a very important detail. And so Paul, what, you know what Paul's trade was? It was tent making. He was trained how to make tents. Uh, we might say, well, man, a tent, I mean, come on. I mean, buy, we can buy a tent anywhere now, any sporting goods store, you go to REI, you buy a tent, tents, anybody get, but in those days, it was, tents were a big deal because they were like portable homes. And people who had a skill in being able to create them and build them and then tailor them, construct them, 
would always have a means of making a living. We know that in Cilicia, Tarsus, there was a unique kind of style of tent making. They used a particular type of goat hair that was highly valued, and not just anybody could do it. So here's why that becomes important. Later on, Paul will find himself in situations where he, he needs resource. He wants, he spreading the gospel with, in the Gentile world. He doesn't want to ask them for money because he feels like if I do, it'll undermine what I'm trying to do. I, I, so he's, he has, there are times where he actually has to be able to make a living and he can't do it um, if, if he didn't have a trade, but he had one. He was able to make tents and that was a big deal. And a lot of times that training would serve him well. But what we know is that yes, he was trained early on how to do that, but he was also sent probably in his teen years by his father back to Jerusalem. And when he goes back to Jerusalem, he is sent to a school. And the school that he is sent to is a school that is run by what was known then as the most preeminent scholar, religious scholar of their day, a man named Gamaliel. And Paul is trained as a youth in this school. It would, okay, there are people, it'd be like if you and I, we have certain maybe professors that we've sat under or maybe people we've worked with or associates we've known and someone were to say, you know, we would say to someone, you know, I, I, I know this person or I sat under this person. You did, it really? Yes, I did. And, and, and there, there, in other words, there was a vernacular of being able to say that we, we know about a certain person we have some familiarity with them. And, and to, if, if people know about them, that would gives immediate credibility. In Paul's case, in the circle of his influence, to say that you were trained under the great Gamaliel was to be like, you know, you were trained under the finest school. So you have this other thing about Paul we know is one, not only, so not only is he this man who's very comfortable in Greek culture, he's kind of a bicultural person, he, he has deep understanding, he's been trained deeply in the ways of the Jewish faith, highly skilled, an intellectual, he's, he's also this person on top of all of that who is intense. He's got this like characteristic of zeal that you almost realize that if it's turned in the wrong direction, it can actually become de destructive. The scary type. And when someone, and we see it, when we see it, 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 it someone who, that's, a, that's an interesting combination to be highly, highly, strictly, fiercely religious, extraordinarily intelligent, and extremely fierce. And if I may add one more thing, somewhat graceless. There you have Saul of Tarsus. Now he's talking. Let's go back to the text that we looked at there. He's saying, look, this is who I was. He says, I, I you know, I, I was born in Cilicia. I, I was someone who um, was brought up and educated here in Jerusalem. I was, I was, I was trained under Gamaliel. I was a student. And I was, as you know, I was given explicit training in our Jewish laws and customs, and I became very zealous to honor God. And some of you out there know that. Some of you remember me. Many of you don't. But I was a man who lived and worked in this city. Look what he says. And some of you will recall what I did. I persecuted. I persecuted the followers of the way. The way was what the church was known at. Before they started calling them Christians, they called them followers of the way. And the way probably is connected to the when Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Anyone who wants to come to the Father has to come through me. 
the way, followers of the way, the way of Jesus. He says, you remember, or maybe you don't remember, but I used to, I was trained in a Gamaliel, very devoted, very devout. I have a meticulous understanding and I share a common love for the law as you do. He's speaking in their language right now. And he says, and you may recall also that I was a persecutor of this way. Look what he says. And I, I persecuted the followers of the way. In fact, and I, I must say this, that I hounded some of them. I pursued some of them. Look, look at this. Even unto death. There was blood on his hands. He says, I also, I also arrested both men and women. He broke up homes. Men and women, and I, I, I threw them into prison. And I didn't do this as some reckless vigilante. I will tell you this. He goes, the high priests and the, the, the whole council of the elders, the Sanhedrin, they know, they can testify this is true. For I received letters. They gave me authority to pursue um, these people in Damascus. I got those letters from our Jewish brothers, in, and I was going out. I received letters and authority from the brothers in Damascus authorizing me to bring these Christians, now the word is used, from their Damascus to Jerusalem in chains to be punished. Then he says, and then if you were to read, continue reading, it's fascinating because what he does says next is this, but something happened to me. I was on a road, the road, the road that you know of that leads to Damascus. And on that road, and he starts to talk to them about how he saw a shining light. And we're going to talk about the conversion moment of Paul on the road to Damascus. And he says, it was so blinding, it was so white. And then I heard a voice, and he starts talking about that, how Jesus begins to speak to him, spoke, how he spoke to him. And he says, and by the time I was done, I couldn't see, but I, I, had, I had to come to a realization that the very one that I was pursuing and the people who I were, was persecuting, that it was actually Jesus, that the very one that I despised was the Savior, the promised Messiah, and that is what I am declaring here. And he began to talk to them about the Lord and his experience and about how God had given him a commission to, to take this message of Jesus to both Jew and Gentile and to those who were not raised in our ways and to teach them how he is the promise. And so anyway, he, that's what he goes on and starts talking about this and, they're very, and, and there's an interesting exchange that occurs all around that as well. Later on, and in fact, I put this in your handout. Later on, Paul, look at, look at 1 Corinthians 15, 8, if you can. Later on, Paul in his life will refer back to this moment. He will talk about that moment when everything changed for him, when everything was radically altered, when his life was turned upside down. He, he, in his mind's eye, he goes back to that moment of conversion, the moment that we're going to be looking at as well in the weeks to come. And he says, then last of all, Paul's writing candidly, he says, last of all, he was seen by me, by me also. I saw him, the risen Christ. It's true. I saw him in a much different way at a much different time, but I saw him. And everything I thought about him that I had believed about him, and I personally am going to make the case, and I'm not the first to do it, that there were some things that were going on inside of Paul's heart, Saul's heart, there was a conscience struggle that was taking place in him. He was in some ways fighting against what he 
thought might actually be possible. And when Jesus gets a hold of his life, it just turns this man around. He says, look, I, I, I was born at an, I know I was born out of due time. It makes no logical sense, but I was born nonetheless. And look what he says, verse 9, for I am the least of the apostles who, the truth is, I'm not worthy. If it, in one way, I'm not worthy to even be called an apostle because you know and I know. And he had to talk to the people whose homes he had broken up. Think about you think, we, we forget this. And he says, I persecuted the church. I can't change that. I did. But by the grace of God, I suppose I am a trophy of his grace. I, he says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And, and if I may say it with all due humility but sincerity, the grace that he gave me was not in vain. I, I did not just take it for granted. I have worked hard, in fact, more abundantly than all of my associates, my fellow apostles. He goes, but even that, lest I take credit for it, is not even me, but it really is the grace of God at work in my life, even there. Now, that's the foundational principles. Let's, in, a, in the few minutes that we have left, let's, uh, let's just sort of take a closer look at this, make a couple of quick applications. I want us to think. Notice the first thing here, and I want to kind of put it up there. Paul couldn't change, number one. He couldn't change, look at this, his past. But he chose, he really did, and it's fascinating, he chose to allow his past to affect, to affect him in a positive way, which is a great lesson for you and me. He couldn't go back. He couldn't go back and erase what had happened. He couldn't change it. I'm sure there were times where he would, when he would meet people whose homes he had blown up, Right? He would meet people, and then there would be these moments where he had no words to say. They would embrace him and love him, and he would ask, but what do you do? You can't change what has been. You can't make it go away. It was done, right? It was finished. And, as, and, and I look at this, and I go, instead of, though, of using that negativity to sort of beat him down, which he could have very easily done, what he did instead is he used it as a, as a motivation. I mean, that's interesting to me. That's a great, it's an interesting principle. He basically says, you know, I can't change what has happened. I wish I could. I so badly wish I could. In fact, part of me feels like I have no even right to do this, but God's grace has brought me to this place. And so I, if he put me here, then you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do the absolute best for him that I can possibly do. In other words, instead of letting his past define him and push him down, he says, you know what? God saw value in me, and if he did, I can't change what has happened, but I can do a lot about my present and about the future, and I'm going to pour my heart into this, and I'm going to give my best to him. And I thought, you know, Lord, there are times where some of us, we have stuff in our past. We have things, some of us right now, we have things that we're struggling with, and we may feel at times that, you know, we're just not worthy. We're not, we just, we feel ashamed of stuff. I just want to make the case that God's grace, look, I told someone last night, I said, how cool is it that if God can use the Apostle Paul who murdered people who loved Jesus and blew up families, and that was his past, and yet he was forgiven, he still had to deal with the residue of some of his choices, but if, if he, he, is there any of us he cannot touch us with his grace. I mean, he, he uses us. And he wants to display his grace. Listen, he wants to display his grace in our lives. Even in our shortcomings and our struggles through those things, God wants to show up in an amazing way. But here's a key principle, loved ones. 
this is very important. I think it's a difference between a healthy life with God, with Christ, and an unhealthy one. Is that Paul did not view, number two, he did not view his service. He did not serve Jesus out of penance, but out of gratitude. I often think about that film, The Mission. Some of you may have seen it. There's this moment where the character that's played by Robert De Niro is so wrecked with guilt because he killed his brother in his anger. And he had a sordid past, slave trader, callous, violent, some ways filthy man. And he's trying to do penance, and he's, he's just carrying this load of stuff. And anyway, I've always thought that that's what, I look at people and say, that's how they're, they're trying to somehow, and it wasn't until someone set him free, he felt free. But it's not about doing enough good stuff to make up for all the bad stuff I did. I was talking to two people. They came to me. They were coming to the door, shared a little bit about this at the intensive last Monday. They were going to share about God. They made their way to the door, and I was, I was just coming in myself, so I ended up, before they got to the door, I said, hey, I, just, I noticed you're going around the neighborhood, and I can see that you're, you, care, you, you seem to really care about God, and you know, let's talk. So we started talking, and I ended up, we ended up talking for an hour right in front of my house. And I said, Here's, the, here's a question for you. How, much of, how many times do you have to go to, the, to these places before you feel like you're good enough for God? What, what, is there enough? How much good works do you have to do to be okay with him? And I said, do you believe, are you saying that, that if you didn't do this, that you, you, you wouldn't be okay? You wouldn't be saved? Do faith in Christ. I said, well, you know, it's, it's, yeah, you kind of have to work your way through. And I said, listen, I go, you, you, I go, I think you're, there's something you're missing here because it's never about being good enough to somehow get the love of Christ in our lives to be accepted by God. I go, because we're never going to be good enough. It's about the grace of God, for by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves. It's not of works as anyone should boast. It's the gift of God. And I said this, can you earn a gift? Can I? I can only receive it. A gift isn't given because I merited it or it's just compensation. It's a gift because someone gave it to me. I said, God has given us the gift of Jesus Christ. And Paul, he got that. He started figuring it out. I don't, he's saying, I don't serve God to get good enough so that Jesus will love me. He says, I serve God because he loved me. In other words, my, my, my works isn't a, is ever going to be enough to impress him. I don't serve him to get his favor. I've received his favor by faith in a way that I never could earn. And because I have, I want to serve him with my life. I want to live for him. I want to honor him. It's a, it's, he fl- it flipped it all over. Before he was a person that said, it's about what I do. It's about the meticulousness of my devotion. It's about the details. And, and those things, are, there was some merit to them. But he, he began to realize it's not about the law. It's about the, the law of grace at work in my life. And he began to have a whole different perception. In other words, I'll use another example. The, uh, remember the parable of the prodigal son where Jesus is talking about how the younger brother is the prodigal. He, he runs out, wait, give me my money, give me my inheritance. Jesus says he runs off to the far country, makes a mess of things, comes back in rags. Lost everything. 
comes back home and says, Jesus says his father's there waiting for him because he's been praying for him, looking for him every night. He comes to him, he finds him, he runs to him, puts his arms around him. Jesus says, starts loving on him, kisses him, just cries. He says, my son who was lost is found. Bring out the new clothes, bring out a ring, kill the fatted calf, the special, special meal. We're going to celebrate my son who was lost is found. Jesus is telling the story, and then Jesus throws on another piece. He says, but this, this boy had a brother, and the brother in Rembrandt's beautiful art captures it perfectly. Right? This angry. Basically, it comes out. Why is he being celebrated? He went off and did whatever he wanted. Now he comes home. Hey, you're making a big deal. I've been serving you faithfully all these years. You never threw me a party like this. I won't go in. I won't. Power. I, every time I say it's powerful, he had a perception, a paradigm of duty. Jesus was teaching the paradigm of the heart. That true, the, the best expression of obedience flows out of the heart. It flows out of an understanding of how much we are loved by God and how much his grace is at work in our lives. And because of that, I want to serve him. I will never be, as Paul says, good enough. I will never serve him perfectly. I will struggle, but I will seek to honor him. I, Paul says, I cannot repay what he has done for me, but I can give him my life. And I will give him this imperfect life, and he wants to use it, so be it. But I will hold nothing back. It's powerful. It's like living as one lives out of grace, not out of law. Do you see the difference? It's not shame-based. It's life-based. It still calls us to a life of growth and consistency and, yes, even obedience and humble submission unto him. But it's done because I love him, not to get his love. Do you see the difference? Because he loves me, I want to honor him, not to get his love. Last thing I'll say, and this is the last one, Paul was a man who was just totally absorbed in the idea and the concept of grace. And he loved the grace of Jesus Christ. It becomes his key teaching, the grace of Jesus Christ. May the grace of our Lord be with you. May his goodness and love and strength and undeserved blessing pour over your life. May you be a man and a, or a woman who experiences the goodness of the grace of God that perhaps shows up most marvelously when we are least deserving of it. That is part of what he was getting at. And, you know, and, and, and I, I think about it, and I'll, I'll just, this will be the final of the final, all right? <laughs> we live in a place right now where there are so many great coffee houses. <laughs> and if you ever go to one, you'll see that there's actually sections set off, and a lot of you probably do, where someone, I'll, someone will walk in and say, you know what, I'll, I'll just have, can you give me a pour over? And just take the water and... Right temperature, it'll pour right over into, this, into the grounds. The water will saturate those grounds, and out of it will come this black liquid, brownish <laughs> black liquid. This, this, this. The grounds are saturated. That's like the grace of God pouring out over our lives. He wants to saturate. Paul's saying, my life's been saturated with the grace of God. And even the life that I am now living. And I want to, even as he poured his grace into me, the next time we see a pour over, see, the 
the grace of God. There it goes. <laughs> the grace poured over me. I want to live and pour out my life for him. I want to. That's what I want to do. May his grace fill our lives. May it saturate every corner of our lives, even our most shameful places. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. The places of our greatest frustrations, the places of our greatest fears and deepest wounds and insecurities, may we not fight him, but may we welcome him in. May his grace flow into us, pour over us, fill us, call us upwards. Let me pray and we'll close. Lord Jesus, we will always need your grace because your grace is sufficient for us. It is a beautiful gift, a gift that we can never earn nor ever be adequately deserving of, but it is an unquenchable love. Uh, it is so beautiful. And Lord, I want to ask you to, to fill our lives with your grace. I want to ask you, Lord, to come into the places where we're most broken or wounded and let your grace flow like a healing stream. I want to, I want to ask you to come into the places where maybe, we, maybe some of us are struggling with our, our health, Lord, or finances or something that's really just tough right now. God, we, we pray for your grace, for your amazing work of, of creativity to come and do beautiful things. And uh, let your work, your grace, also show up in us in ways that come profoundly, even when they seem antithetical, they almost seem like illogical, but your presence is enough, and it shows up even sometimes in our suffering and shameful places, most of all. And we know, we know we are loved, and we are accepted, and, and we are called upwards. So I just pray that as we close our service out, Lord, that we would not be in a hurry. We just, as a, the closing song, let that song remind us of the river that flows, the river of grace that flows over our lives. And I pray that you bless our time of giving as many of us honor you in our tithes and offerings. We do so in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Thank you.